Well, this afternoon, uh, we're going to be continuing in the 34th Psalm in our first Sunday Psalm series. Um, I very much enjoyed this series. It's been a, a challenge for me in my own study of God's Word and preaching. Um, and I pray that it has been as beneficial to you as well. And next week, of course, we'll be uh, back in Hebrews, uh, Lord willing. So, but let's hear God's Word, God's holy and inspired Word, which He breathed. The 34th Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life? And loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, which we have just read, your holy and inspired word, your voice to us. And we ask you today that you would take and bless this word and that you would nourish our hearts and strengthen our hearts, that you would increase and strengthen our faith. We ask that that which is preached today would be true to your word. And we ask that you would work in each of us according to your will to minister your grace and mercy to us that we might turn more to our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd rest upon this preacher, that you would chain him to your word, that he might freely declare truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every single one of us has some sort of a dish, some sort of a food that we just can't wait to taste again. To, to put it in our mouth and to have the, that sweet or salty or rich or, I guess if you're far northern European, kind of bland flavor go across, uh, go across your tongue and, and, and go down with that flavor. And, you, and once again, you taste it and you see that, yes, this is good. And our psalmist here is talking about the goodness of God and the, his goodness to his people and he and with a word of praise and a word of instruction to point people to the God of Israel, to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that we might rejoice in him, in order that we might walk in him, in order that we might rest in him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
to the one might say, is the Lord good? The answer to this psalmist is, yes, he is indeed good. So let us continue to taste and see that he is good. The psalm is broken up into a couple of uh, two main divisions in the first 10 verses. Uh, We see words of praise and words of assurance, words of praise, praising God for his great work, praising God for who he is. And then words of assurance of assuring that God is faithful to his word, faithful to his character, such that he will always work on behalf of his people for his for his own glory and for their good. Verses one through six, we have those were in verses one through three. We have that praise along with verses four through six is a matter of thanksgiving. And then verses seven through ten, we have those words of assurance. And then verses eleven through twenty, the second part, we have words of instruction in which he's instructing um, when he says, come, O children, uh, maybe used as teaching children uh, in the, at a gathering, or maybe speaking of children as the children of Israel, as the children of God. But come, O children, listen to me. The remainder of the psalm is instruction. Instruction on this idea that we find in the first psalm and that we find in the 15th psalm asking this question, who is the man who knows the favor of God? And he answers, of course, it is the righteous man. We're also going to see that just like those Psalms, whereas we are called to righteousness and we are called to live righteously as a matter of necessity as Christians, this is also pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is that man. As we'll see, in fact, there's a pretty explicit quote that the Gospel of John uses at the crucifixion of Jesus that comes straight out of this psalm. This psalm also has a number of different places, if we're familiar with the New Testament, the uh, New Testament scriptures, in which our phrases and sections of this psalm are quoted at length. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 10 through 12, verses 12 through 14 of this psalm is quoted. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, um, verse 8 is, uh, appears to be present. I mentioned John 19, 36 and uh, verse 20. Uh, Romans 14, uh, verse 19 also references verse 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Along with something we'll be coming up on in weeks or months. I don't know. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14, in which he says... Um, and um, and pursue and and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, and pursue peace with all men. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse fourteen. But without further ado, let's get into this psalm and let's look at what is here. And again, this being a a psalm, it's very difficult to break a psalm up and to treat it to treat it in separate small sections because of the fact that it's all one big thing and goes together. It's a lot easier to do that with letters from the New Testament. It's very hard. So we're going to be looking at this psalm from the standpoint of the whole thing and looking at um, how that works into these different sections. But this first section in verses 1 through 3 is an opening salvo of praise, an opening words of exalting God. We hear these words. Listen to this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. We see, first of all, that the psalmist is making a statement about something he will do, something that he is purposing to do, something that it is necessary for him to do as someone who's in covenant with God. What David is saying here is, I will bless the Lord at all times. He's making this a statement of this is my business. I will bless the Lord. And when does he say he's going to bless the Lord? Is he going to bless the Lord when things are all ro- just when things are all rosy? 
and he's in green pastures? Or will he also bless the Lord when he's in the desert place, when everything's all brown and sandy? Rather, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. He understands that David understands here and expressing this reality. God is to be blessed at all times because of who he is. It is the nature of God to be praised. For he alone is truly praiseworthy. It is the nature of God to be trusted and to be rejoiced in. For he truly is the only one who is trustworthy. For God alone is the one who deserves that kind of praise. So he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He's looking away from himself. He's looking away from himself. He's not saying, look at what I did, but he's saying, look at what the Lord has done. Even in the instruments that God uses, he's praising the Lord. After all, the context of this psalm is given in the inscription of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. We can find that story in the book of First Samuel In in First Samuel in chapter twenty one, starting in verse ten, David is fleeing Saul here. This is before he's officially become king. He's been declared privately that he's going to be king, but it has not become official. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, Achish is also referred in another place to as Abimelech. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That means as they were thinking, we don't want this guy around, so let's get rid of him. And this is one of the stories that I always kind of draws a smile to my face, just the irony of it. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so they said, get out of here. They let him go. And that was an instrument that God used to rescue David. Now, there are some commentators that look at what David did and said that God rescued him in spite of his behavior. They said David took clearly took things into his own hands rather than trusting the Lord. Or it could be that the Lord put that upon his heart to do that as a means of his rescue. And either way, whether it was in spite of David's activity or whether it was because um, that was the means God uses, he gave thanks and praise to God. He gave thanks and praise to God. There are many ways in which God helps us in our times of needs, in our times of need. And most often it is through various means. Means that are quite ordinary and typical. Such as if one has a severe illness, there may be someone who has the ability to treat that illness. That's a means that God can use to help us. But God is still the one who is to be praised. He gives praise and thanks to God. And thus, he says, his praise shall be continually on my mouth. And then he continues in that vein and moves it from the future now to the present. Which he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. He's making a statement about what his boast should be. When we think of boasting, we, ought, we rightly think of it when we, when we think of boasting in and of ourselves and about ourselves as something to not 
in which to not engage. You know, the story of the, the boaster who goes and says, look at what I've done and look at all that I have. That's boasting. But here he says, my soul does make a boast. Just like in 1 Corinthians when it says uh, let the one who boasts, uh, the, one, the one boasting in the Lord, let him boast. There's one who should boast. It's the one who's boasting in the Lord. That is a righteous boast. And he's making much of God. My soul makes boast. It's boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And there is a connection there. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. That is to be the nature of the Christian existence is that of humility. And we're going to see, of course, later that while we do this imperfectly, because behind every one of our humble acts, there's some pride there as well. Because we're still having dwelling sin. But there's one who did truly make his boast in the Lord. There's one who truly always praised the Lord. And then he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You see, the prideful look at something and say, look what I did. But the humble will say, look at what God did. The prideful look at themselves and into themselves and from themselves. The humble look outside of themselves. Maybe we've been told before, take a deep look inside and find the strength that is there and pull it out and use it. Maybe we've heard that before. But if we understand ourselves aright and we take that look inside, sure, we might see some things that we like, but we'll eventually turn to a point of despair because we see how awful we actually truly are. Rather, we look outside of ourselves to our God who is our sufficient Savior and our sufficient Lord. And so makes its boast in the Lord. And thus he calls upon his brothers. He calls upon his fellow Israelites. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's also saying, join with me in this. I don't want to do this all by myself. But join with me. And once again with me, taste and see that the Lord is good. Understands that this is not just a private, personal is not a matter of private personal piety, but it's a matter of that which also impacts the community. For my joy is your joy, and your joy is my joy. Your sorrow is my sorrow, and my sorrow is your sorrow. My thanks is your thanks, and your thanks is my thanks. No, 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 I'm not just saying that with regards to me and you, but I'm saying that with regards to us together with all of God's people. For we've been united together with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, let us magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. There is no private Christianity that is just private and personal. There is private personal aspects to Christianity. I don't wish to say that that's not, a, not at all. But this is something also that impacts the community. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David also being the king was in a place where his, his, his uh, deliverances and his defeats were, had monumental impact upon the people. And so thus, magnify the Lord with me. For he was their king. Just as we have one who is our covenant head, who is represents us before the father and his victory has become our victory. And he calls upon us. Our Lord Jesus Christ calls upon us. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. As we've learned in Hebrews, he is our Lord. He is our king. And according to his humanity, he is our brother.
And then in verses 4 through 6, he then speaks, he begins to tell the story. The story behind the reason for his praise. Through words of thank, the words that are expressing thanksgiving. And once again, praising God through the language of saying, the Lord did this. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So we see, first of all, and we have some uh, just from the standpoint of looking at the language and things like this fascinate me. There's a lot of statements that we say are parallel, meaning that they they build off of one another and they're restating the same thing in different words. We see, first of all, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me. And what did he deliver him from all his fears? And then in verse 6, we have the statement that builds on that. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So when he says, I sought the Lord, he is seeking the Lord as an understanding of himself that he is needy. That he has need. We're oftentimes taught to think you're sufficient. You have what it takes Don't be needy. But we need to be needy. For we, as David expresses here, is a poor man. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. There's a little song from a stage play that also became a long musical on screen that I like to sing because it's got a neat tune. But the song is, If I Were a Rich Man. If I Were a Rich Man. I think a better way to read that from the standpoint of this would be, looking at this is, Oh, if I were a poor man. If I were a poor man, I would see my need to seek the Lord. For what does Jesus say? But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is not the one who has no need that the Lord hears, but it is the one who has need and cries out. And it is not because that person did uh, took, the fir- took the first steps and did what he needed to do and helped himself, and then God said, I'm going to help you. But rather, it is crying to the Lord for I am absolutely needy and have nothing. So answer me, help me, deliver me. And he says, and what did the Lord do? He delivered him. He delivered him from the, uh, from the fears that he had with regards to Abimelech and being handed over back to Saul or being murdered by him. And then we have verses 5 and 7 are statements that define one another. He says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So here we see those who look to him are what? They're radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Again, when we think of shame, when we think of radiance, We must think of those in terms of what God considers shame and what God considers radiant. When we think of shame, we often think of being thought of as poor, being thought of poorly by those around us. And there are times when that kind of shame comes upon us and it is warranted because we have done something deserving of shame. But yet... There are times when the believers in Christ Jesus, when his people have done nothing to warrant shame, but have been been good, but are regarded as shameful because they go against the currents of those who are around them. In different places in the world, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, in different in some settings, 
they, they are considered to have brought great shame upon their family and have shamed themselves. And honor needs to be restored. And honor is usually restored by either making them come back or by ending their life. But that person has truly been honored. For they have looked to the Lord. They've been honored by the Lord. The one who's come to him. For it is in, it is in him that we are never truly ashamed. And the reason for that is in what's in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. The one who according to the conven- who according to conventional wisdom is to be looked down upon and shamed but has the Lord and trusts him and walks in him and fears him has far more honor than the person who according to conventional wisdom is to be honored and exalted though he or she rebels against the Lord. We must not must ensure that we don't have it backwards for those who are in Christ will never be eternally be ashamed but there shall be those who had great honor and thought great honor to themselves who will stand before the Lord in that great day and find but shame and find that they are not as honorable as they thought and so these words of assurance We find in this, I sought the Lord and he delivered me that those who look to him are radiant, shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. These are all words of of stating this is what God does. And also verse seven is kind of a the grounds for everything that came before. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So therefore, seek the Lord. Therefore, I sought the Lord. Therefore, we look to him. Therefore, we cry to him because he encamps around those who fear him. And once again, he's making this statement. The Lord is good. And in verse eight, he then says it again. He then says it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So here he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's giving, again, the gra- he's now uh, giving more grounds for everything that came before. God is good, so taste and see. And specifically what he means by that is take Refuge in him to take refuge in him. What is a place of refuge, but a place of protection? It's a place to be place to be protected from harm that someone might be fleeing. I've shared this story before, but I always find it very um, that touches me every time I think of it. And Dan Richardson, one of Dan Richardson's book uh, with regards to uh, when he looks at cultures around the world, he looks for redemptive, what's called redemptive analogies in their cultures, which is he looks for things that testify of the innate human, the innate knowledge of God that's been created within us. And that there's a God who's created and a God who protects. And he describes in one of his books, one particular Um, It was a tribal culture that had little contact with the outside world. And he tells a story of a raid of one village on another village. And one of the particular raiders got separated from his people and he was being chased down. And so he went into the village, in the village he was raiding, he went into their place of refuge. And if he went into that place, he was not to be harmed because it's a place of protection. Even though he was in his enemy's camp, it was a place of 
refuge. There will be people who flee from their own homes, homelands, to go to other, to other homelands, other cities, to seek protection and refuge from very, very difficult, tense, and dangerous situations. They seek protection. And this is what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good, is to seek the refuge in Him, to seek protection in Him, to seek His favor. Another way of saying that is to trust in Him, to wait on Him. To find our hope in Him. That is what it is to taste that the Lord is good. And He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who, have no, those who fear Him have no lack. And further, He expands, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. So, he calls upon us to fear the Lord, to trust Him, and to look to Him, and to recognize Him for who He is, and to reverence Him. All that flows from trusting in Him. To fear Him, you His saints. And if we fear Him, we truly have no lack, He says. There is no lack for the one who fears Him. Of course, we might say, I'm lacking a whole lot of things, and I seek the lord and trust him well again this is not this is not according to conventional wisdom rather he gives us everything we need for life and godliness he doesn't promise that for the person who doesn't like the heat he doesn't promise that you'll always get to be in a place where there's plentiful rain clouds or for the person who doesn't like the rain clouds. He doesn't give the promise you'll always be in a place where the sun is always shining and no, and it never go, goes below 70 and never goes above 75. <clears throat> but rather, we have no lack in him. Then he gives us, in verse 10, he, this illustration of the young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What do we think of when we think of a young lion? We think of something that is strong and powerful and can do what, it's want, do, what, do what it wants. And that is the imagery that is being brought forth. And he says, the young lion, it will suffer want. This strong thing will suffer want. This strong thing may suffer difficulty. But there's a contrast. The one who seeks the Lord, regardless of how apparently strong or powerful or how apparently weak or powerless they are, lack no good thing. A particular philosopher um, who, much to my alarm, is becoming very popular in Western thinking, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche, he flat out said, I could never be a Christian because it is a religion for the weak. Right. He's even detested the fact that God, God entered into human history and took on weakness in the, not, not in according to his divinity, but took upon the weakness of humanity and died a miserable, humiliating death. And that for him is testimony that Christianity can't be legitimate because it's birthed in weakness. And I'm, I'm, great, I'm great, greatly concerned that people are liking Nietzsche again. Are my brothers and sisters... We are, not, we are not to think of ourselves as the lion. Rather, we must think of ourselves as helpless sheep. Because that is what we are. It's in vogue right now to say, I'm not a sheep. I must say, I want to be a sheep. Because I'm needy. We should want to be, we should recognize we are needy and need the Lord and that in him we lack no good thing. 
So taste and see that the Lord is good. And rest in those words of assurance. Before we now move on in verse 11 to what he now speaks of in terms of his instruction. Remember, while one might be strong according to sight, in his humanity he or she is weak. And now we look at this instruction in verse 11 and following. And in the first part of verses 11 through 14, he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So the first thing he's teaching here, he says, I'm teaching you the fear of the Lord. We've been reading through the Proverbs in our services. And early on in the Proverbs, what does he say? But the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. To recognize that there's a God and that he that that there's this being called God who created everything and that we must rely upon him and not ourselves for we do not have it in ourselves. That is the beginning of wisdom. The man who has written pages and pages of, of pages and pages of books and is regarded as wise, who does not fear the Lord from this standpoint is actually foolish. Though that person may have good things to say, from the sense of good things to say for the common good of people, from the standpoint of God, he is foolish. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he expands what he means by that. What man, if one, if one desires life, one loves many days that he may say good. What is it to fear the Lord? Here he says it is to do right. To keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's quoted in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, as I mentioned just a moment ago. It's quoted verbatim, but you can look it up. But he says, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing for. And then he quotes from the psalm. Word for word, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Quotes all the way through verse 16. But here we see this idea that the, the good life that is pleasing to God is one that involves keeping from evil and seeking peace. It is in our nature to pursue evil and to pursue violence rather than seeking peace and pursuing it, rather than turning from evil. It is in our nature for our tongues to speak awful, horrible things. does not matter how big one's quadriceps or how big one's biceps are. Their tongue, a tongue is a far stronger muscle. You may have heard the little rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No untruer words have ever been spoken. For the tongue is a powerful weapon that does great harm. And then he goes in verse 15 and he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous in verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The main thesis of this section is this. To whom, is the, to whom does the Lord look and say, I will help? He says to the righteous. His ears are turned toward their cry. But to those who do evil, his face is against them. The Lord gives grace to the proud, but he, re, but he resists. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. We can say that was intentional to keep your attention. This is the man that God look this is the the man that God works in. This is the man that God helps is the righteous person. But of course we've already established many times not just in this message we are not that man. We are not that person. We're going to see in a moment who that person is and how that relates to us. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. He's near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so the one who is righteous can look to the Lord in confidence, can look to the Lord in expectation that he will deliver, that he will help, that he will save. We move to verses 19 through 22 and we see that man. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, the, he first of all states the righteous, though they are have God's favor, experience afflictions, experience difficulty. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. In fact, the proverb we read from earlier today drew that contrast uh, when it spoke of. Well, I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote it. This is what happens when things make it into your sermon from things that you uh, read during the service. In verse 16 of Proverbs 11, we have a contrast. A gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. It's not exalting the violent. The violent men is doing good things. It's actually drawing a contrast. The violent men may get riches, but the gracious woman, she gets something greater than riches. She gets honor. And so we go back to our psalm. So the proverb is not saying, okay, let's be violent so we can get riches. It's saying honor is greater than the riches. When we look, but we go back to this, the righteous experience many afflictions and the Lord delivers him out of them all. Who is this righteous person? Is this you? Is this me? It's not me. I can guarantee you that. And I can also guarantee you not because I know you on all your stuff, but because I know who we are as humans, it's not you. It's actually answered in verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You may say, how does that tell us that that who this righteous one is? Let's turn our attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. And I'm not the only one who makes this connection, just so you know. There's plenty. John chapter 19, verse 36. Uh, Sorry. John chapter 19. Yeah. Yeah, verse 36. I'm sorry. I'm using handwritten notes today. So. Starting verse 31. And since it was Jesus has been crucified, he said, it is finished. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might not be taken away. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, this is also this is also in reference to um, things that we see in the book of <clears throat> things that we see in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers in Exodus chapter 12, uh, as well as in Numbers chapter nine, we have uh, the story of the Passover lamb. And it said the Passover lamb, none of its bones were to be broken, but it simply makes the statement. None of the bones are to be broken. This, what we have in John 19, 36, the only place where you, find, where you find that exact wording regarding not one of the bones will be broken is right here in Psalm 34, verse 20. It's a, with reference, it's making reference to the, to the Paschal Lamb. That this, that this righteous man is the one whose bones are not, were not broken. This one is the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ, this righteous one, this one who says, <clears throat> who has kept his tongue from evil, whose lips did not speak deceit, who turned away from evil and did good. Who cried for help and was answered, for he rose from the dead, is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is that righteous one. Augustine says, who is this righteous one? The one whose bones are not broken. The one who is hated. Who is this one who is hated by the ungodly? Augustine says this. Who else is this just one but our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the propitiatory offering for our sins? That means he took upon himself our condemnation. We cannot fulfill the demands of the righteousness, but Christ fulfilled those demands for us. And in him, we can go to God with confidence and say, deliver me. And in him, he also calls us to seek to be this righteous person, to fulfill what's, what we just read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, which is you have been redeemed, you've been given new life, now do this. But if it doesn't start with this one who is the righteous one, where do we begin? And we can rest in this. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Must remember that because this righteous one whose affliction was severe, because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was afflicted. He was afflicted greatly and not just in his death. He was afflicted in the wilderness in the temptation when he fasted for 40 days and he was hungry, which is a great understatement. I mentioned earlier a person from Good Shepherd. He preached on that and he said, when it says he was hungry, he said, I think we need to read it this way. In his, in his northern Louisiana accent. And he was hungry. He was afflicted. And then at the garden of Gethsemane. When he cried out to God. He sweat. His sweat was his blood. As he said. Father if there's any other way we can do this. Let's do that. And then, of course, upon the cross, he was afflicted. He was pursued, he was chased, and he was abused. But the Lord delivered him out of it all for when he rose from the dead. And thus, because of him who suffered, this one who is the true Paschal Lamb, that true Passover Lamb, 
whose bones were not broken. So it is for us. We are not greater than our master. And we will suffer severe affliction to varying degrees. What one, can, what one person considers severe, a mother, another might say, that's nothing. But one says, that's nothing. Another might say, that's pretty severe. But we're not greater than our master. And we will suffer severe affliction. For we too are righteous. For we are righteous in him. He is our righteousness. And there's one day when we will truly be this in ourselves. But we will never be more justified than we are now in Jesus Christ. And nor will our bones be broken. And say, well, that can't be true because I've already broken my bones. I mean, I broke my, I was a believer and I broke my wrist in like 12 places 23 years ago and then, of course, you know, my leg injury a few years ago and others might say, I've broken my bones and I've been a believer. No, it's speaking of what the bones speak of. What are the bones to the body? But they are, are our support system. They hold us up. What would happen if our bones no longer existed? If we didn't have bones anymore? We, we would be lumps of tissue. We'd be blobs. They're our support structure. Our support will never be broken. For our support is rooted in Christ Jesus through faith in Him, who is our refuge in the Father. And so, if we are to taste and see that the Lord is good, and this is not inviting us, oh, just try it out, and if you don't like it, you know, do something else. It's telling us this. You've, it's, telling, telling, it's speaking to people who've already tasted. Keep tasting that the Lord is good. Keep tasting and you'll know His goodness. It's by looking to Christ and resting in Him and living in Him. Because He's done all that we need. He is that righteous one. He is our deliverance. And so we, too, have every reason to say, in closing, my brothers and sisters, with David, and along with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greater David, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let us pray. Father, you are good and we have tasted that you are good. In our Lord Jesus Christ, help us that we might continue to taste and see that you are good. Help us to turn from ourselves and our sinful ways and look to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. To rest in him and receive from him. And these things we pray, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.